Christianity is simple. It's not complex. In fact, if you wanted to sum up what the Bible teaches, you could put it into one sentence that I would say is trust the promises of God for you in Christ. Properly understood, nuanced from God's word, this sentence includes everything you need to know for life and godliness. But of course, saying it's enough to know for life and godliness is not the same thing as saying it is all that you need to know. There's lots of things that we don't learn in Scripture. For example, should we call Pluto a planet or not? What's the temperature at which water boils at 10,000 feet? What is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow, European or not? These are things that we don't learn in the Bible. Thank you for laughing at me, Kelly. I needed that. But this brings me to an important question. What does the Bible say about evolution? What does it say about gender dysphoria? What does the God's word say about abortion or climate change? Must we make our decisions about these topics and others based upon our political party or whichever fake news channel we prefer? Now, I want you to notice something. I haven't said one thing either way about any of these issues, and already we're feeling triggered, aren't we? The Bible clearly and coherently speaks to the heart of the reality behind these questions. And it enables you and me to speak well, though humbly, about the philosophical and religious aspects of these questions. Now today, I'm not even going to pretend to give anything like the final word on any of these issues. Instead, what I hope to do is to give God's word on the key problem. To give God's word on what makes these issues the heartaches they are. So what is the problem? What is it that causes our hearts to ache when we discuss these particular views? It comes from how you choose to interpret the world around you. The fundamental question is, is man the measure of all things, or is Christ supreme and sufficient? As we seek to give a reason for the hope that is in us with regards to these questions, we must not fall into the overpopulated trap of thinking that you and me are the measure of all things. Christianity is simple. It is not complex. And in its simplicity, we learn to make decisions on how to relate to the firestorms that are consuming us around us about these issues. And it ought not to surprise anyone It's all about the cross. Today's passage is a fast pitch right down the center of the plate for dealing with the two most common philosophies in our culture today. The two most powerful, overwhelming ideas that control just about every single aspect of our culture's life. 
So let's start where we were last week in verse 4. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There are two plausible arguments that have become cultural dogma, that have become the accepted teaching. And like I said, they impact every aspect of life. The first is materialism. Materialism is the philosophical framework that presupposes that there is nothing in the universe outside of matter and energy. There is only brain. There is only chemical reaction and somehow that supervenes into consciousness what little people like you and me like to call our mind. Now, the materialistic conception automatically rules out that humanity, what humanity has believed for all of our existence, and that is there is more to this universe, there is more to you than you can touch. Materialism, closely related to naturalism, finds its most famous exposition in the general theory of, of evolution, macroevolution, Darwinism, the amoeba to man hypothesis. Now, I want to time out for a second. No sane person I know denies microevolution. No sane person denies that there are shifts in population among finches, for example, that their beak shape and size changes. We all know that that's true. But now, the result, the necessary result of materialism, which is acknowledged by materialists, is that life is meaningless. You're here, you die, you're gone, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, the second plausible argument that is found everywhere throughout our culture is postmodernism. Postmodernism has become a radical denial of the ability to discover truth. It automatically rules out any objective ground for morality. Now, there are different forms of this ideology, but the most popular form today is summed up in the saying, that's not true for me. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. There is no truth. So therefore, again, life is meaningless. Now, my friends, people can't live this way consistently. And that's why we need thought police correcting every statement so that it conforms to the requisite norms that are constantly changing around us. Even materialistic demigod Richard Dawkins is not immune from the hypocrisy from the postmodernists. And these are the plausible arguments around us today. We are told incessantly that we must embrace these dogmas or we risk being on the wrong side of history. So, church, what are we to do about this? Preach the cross. Preach the cross. I give as my reason for preaching this message what Paul did in Acts chapter 17 where he went toe-to-toe talking about the philosophies that were popular in his day. And I also cite what one brave follower of Martin Luther said, 
when he said, if I profess with loudest voice and the clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God, except precisely that little point on which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. Where the battle rages, the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace to him if he flinches at that one point. So my friends, today I want to challenge you to enter the field of battle and with you be armed with the sword of the Spirit. The ultimate answer to the various problems of philosophy begins and ends at the cross of Jesus. Knowing Christ and Him crucified. Now, I want to give everybody a fair warning here, Christian and non-Christian alike. The topics we are going to talk about today are offensive. And very likely, most of you will be offended at one point or another. I will do my very best to make sure that offense doesn't come from me. It comes instead from God's Word. But I want you to be forewarned. So if you're willing to stay, here we go. Verse 6. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding with thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him Also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now I want you to catch that when Paul is seeking to defend his readers in the first century and his readers in the 21st century, he spends his time talking about the cross. Therefore, the big idea of our morning is see the world through Christ. Let's open at verse 2, 6, and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. Now, these two verses serve as the heading for the rest of the chapter. This morning, we're looking at the issues of philosophy that plague us, and next week, we'll look at the issues of religion that plague us. And in both cases, the answer will be Christ and Him crucified. And that idea is the one that is sandwiched between these two sections. And we'll find that the supreme and sufficient 
Christ enables us to see the relationship between science and philosophy and religion. But in order to make sense, in order to understand these issues and the rest of issues of life for that matter, it is crucial that we see Jesus Christ as the wisest, the most intelligent, the best informed person in the universe. Jesus Christ could give advice to Neil deGrasse Tyson on astrophysics, and Jesus Christ could give advice to Richard Dawkins on biology. And this is because Christ is supreme, and Christ is sufficient. So, if Paul is heading these two big sections, what does he exhort us to do? Three things. To root ourselves in the word, being built up in Christ, and to endeavor to understand what we believe, and to live thankfully. I can't put it better. If you do these three things, no one will be able to delude you with plausible arguments like, for example, man is this measure of all things. If you will walk in Jesus by grace, through faith, pursuing these things, you will avoid a lot of the philosophical traps that threaten your soul and the soul of your culture. And Paul gets to the heart of this part of his argument in verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Now, if you want to be an ambassador of Christ, you need to understand the basic command right here. He says, Pay attention! Look, I'm telling you something really, really important. See to it that no one takes you captive. Because all you see when you're flicking channels or when you're surfing the web is man is the measure of all things. What people think is most important. Take a poll to see what the truth is. My friends, it is far more difficult than it has been in the past given that you and I live in an age of technology that Paul couldn't have dreamt of. But use it to your benefit by going to resources that will give you the tools you need to combat this man is the measure of all things philosophy. The lie that is permeating everywhere. Go to the sources that preach and proclaim Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. But as as we do this, as we enter into the battlefield of the world around us, we have to ask ourselves an important question. We have to see, is there something that that separates, that divides the dozens of philosophies, the frameworks that I spoke of a few minutes ago? Is there a way that you and I can understand the various philosophies that are around and, and, and get a hold of their foundation so that we can critique them, even if we don't know the thousands of little details that are in it? Well, fortunately, there is. It's called, the concept is called worldview. James Sire says, a worldview is a commitment. 
It is a fundamental orientation of the heart that can be expressed as a story or as a set of presuppositions. Presuppositions are those assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold, consciously or not, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic constitution of reality and that provides the foundation upon which we live and move and have our being. A worldview is simply that. It's your way of looking at the world around you. It's a framework. It's a hat rack, so to speak, that keeps your hats sorted. Now, philosophers, up until recently, have always agreed that such a thing was necessary, even if they disagreed on what that should look like. James Sire, in his book, The Universe Next Door, one of the most important resources that you could get on understanding your culture today, hint, hint, James Sire identifies the nine most prevalent worldviews that influence our world today. Now, we can't even begin to scratch the three that we're looking at, materialism, uh, postmodernism, and Christian theism today. But I believe that it is this concept of worldview that Paul has in mind when he says philosophy or plausible arguments in Colossians chapter 2. Because if your worldview makes man the measure of all things instead of Christ as the center, then you will see the world wrongly and therefore will suffer the maladies of numerous kinds and to various degrees relative to how far off center Christ is from your way of looking at the world. And if you do, the only... the only thing that you can come up with is that life is meaningless and there is no such thing as truth. So I have another question. Humanly speaking, how do you and I, how do we choose which worldview to have? How do people decide over one philosophy or another? Now, much of what happens in the world happens in pursuit of the same three idols mankind has been chasing since we left the garden. Money, sex, and power. Some combination of all or some of them have colored the eyes of every man, woman, and child of all stripes, all philosophies, and all religions since the fall. Now this is where we see that both materialism and postmodernism have what we call a philosophical payoff. There is a reason beyond the pursuit of truth or the beyond science that would make someone want to subscribe to these particular worldviews. In the first part of the 20th century, Aldous Huxley was one of Darwin's biggest promoters. And he said this, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously a liberation from certain political and economic systems and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. We objected to the political and economic system because it was unjust. And the supporters of these systems claimed that in some way they embodied the meaning, a Christian meaning 
they claim, insisted, of the world. Here's the punchline. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. If men could convince women that life is meaningless, they could get those women to take off their skirt. But surely, no woman would fall for that. No woman would fall for the lie that the lump of tissue in their womb is meaningless so that he could get her to take off her skirt again. Right? Or is that the biggest lie that was perpetuated in the 20th century to abuse and cast war on women? If there is no truth, as the postmoderns say, and if life is meaningless, as the materialists say, then why not? Chase and catch as many skirts as you can. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. And don't worry about lumps. And certainly don't worry about the truth. Paul argues that the solution to the problem of bad philosophy in the first century and in the 21st century is the cross. The cross is where we find forgiveness of sins. The cross teaches that there is truth And the cross teaches us that life is meaningful. If you are able to arm yourselves with the work of God on the cross, you will defend yourselves from the lies that are seeking to destroy your soul. You don't need excuses. You don't need to complain about your boss being unfair. You don't need to complain about your genetic makeup. You don't need to be, complain about not being potty trained right. You can find forgiveness of your sins and you can find strength to fight any and every sin that your own sin nature finds attractive. This is true if you eat too much. This is true if you gamble too much. This is true if you lie too much or if you have too many lovers. You don't need to go to arguments made plausible by so many pretty words and human traditions and demonic spirits. You can go to the cross where you will find mercy and grace in your time of need. There you will find that Christ is good and true and beautiful and sufficient. He is enough. He is all we need. My friends, when you pray to Jesus, you are praying to the wisest, most intelligent, capable, and giving person in the universe. And He is able to help you in any and every situation you face. 
See the world through Christ. See the world through what Christ did on the cross. Because listen, we all wear glasses. We, the accepted term on both sides of the philosophical aisle is this idea of worldview. And we wear glasses that color the world and, and in a large extent determine what it is that we see in the world around us. Your glasses show you the world as if man is the measure of all things in any multitude of the flavor that worldview comes in. Or your glasses show you that Christ is supreme and Christ is sufficient. But Christian, let us not pretend that we have the perfect glasses and we see everything perfectly clearly because you know as well as I do we have our own faulty thoughts. And so we need to submit those thoughts to the cross. We need to go to the cross and see that Christ is the one who is supreme over all things. God's kingdom is not suffering today because of what CNN says. God's kingdom is not being thwarted because Playboy and Hustler and all of these other online websites are there. Instead, you can go to the cross and you can find that Christ is supreme. He is powerful enough to enable you to fight those temptations and He is sufficient for you to find meaning and truth and worth. See the world through Christ. Now the trick is to know what glasses you're wearing. The materialist wants you to believe as they stand on MSNBC or some other station and they say, we just like science. We don't have any presuppositions. Oh my goodness, that is the biggest lie. Everybody does, including you and including me. So don't pretend you don't. Instead, wear the different glasses and see what is true. What is going on? Maybe there's something I can learn. But those who claim that they wear no glasses also spew ad hominem arguments against us. They call us deniers. Allow me a sidebar for a moment. Those who deny climate change are called science deniers. Now, first of all, I don't know a single responsible person who denies that the climate is changing. Everybody who's paying attention to the facts understands those facts. Secondly, I don't know a single responsible person who denies that we should do more to protect our environment. Of course we must. I do, however, know of responsible scientists who deny that the alarmism and the economically crippling policies are a good idea. If you want to find some of them, they're on PragerU.org. But while we're on the topic of science deniers, I have a question. Who denies science when you can't look at the fetus in a womb and recognize that it is a human being you are looking at and a person? Who is it denying science, denying the very hallmark of science, and that is that sacred cows make good hamburger? 
Who is it who denies science when you cannot allow a peer-reviewed article written by a person with a terminal degree to be published because they question Darwinian orthodoxy? And finally, who is it who's denying science when you can't pull down someone's pants and determine if they're male or female? Who's denying science? If there is no meaning and there is no truth, then the only hope you can find, if you can call it hope, is grabbing whatever gusto you can find. Now some who do this find intellectual gusto and they go more in the philosophical direction. And some, most, it's more of a sensual gusto and they borrow from these guys to pursue their own lusts. That really doesn't matter. On the other hand, reality is a hard wall to bang your head against. And we as a culture are learning this lesson, and we will learn this lesson in increasingly more painful ways as time goes on. Now, whatever it is we must do to accommodate those with gender dysphoria, whatever it is we must do to love them, as human beings who need love just like you and me. Whatever it is that we must do to make absolutely certain that we are not the cause of unnecessary offense, we must stand up against the foolishness that passes off as science in this upside-down culture. And we will do it when we see the world through Christ. Now, that was an introduction to my sermon. We'll turn to verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you also were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Oh Lord, if I had any more than just the 14 weeks I have to water ski through Colossians, these verses right here demand a whole sermon of themselves. But I don't. And I need to say the most important thing in the universe is to be found in Christ. Is every question we've been looking at answered? Obviously not. Is every problem solved? Is every issue resolved? No and no. Then what good is this to our discussion? What, how does this help us, Pastor Greg? Well, Paul answers that question for us. Verse 13. And you... We're dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Let me tell you a story. Imagine you were walking through a Greek village in the first century. You didn't have any money. You're pretty hungry. So as you're going through the downtown uh, part, you see this little 
uh, baker over here, and he's got his little stand. And so you take yourself a five-finger discount, and you start moving on. And someone says, hey, that guy stole some bread. Sure enough, the cop comes, he catches you, you got the bread, and what does he do? He marches you right over to the center of town, and he puts your hand on this pole, he wraps you up there, and then he takes a piece of paper. And this piece of paper in Latin is called the labellum debitum, or in Greek it's called the chirographon. In English it's called the record of debt. And he'll write on there, Joe Blow stole some bread on, you know, July 23rd. And his punishment is going to be, say, 10 lashes with the whip. So they tie you onto this pole and they nail above you this certificate of debt because they want everybody to see that you're getting beat up because you stole this guy's bread. So, good enough. Gives you the whips, hands you the paper, you go home. A week later after you've done recovering from your beating, you kind of walk like this back into town and someone says, hey, that's the guy who stole the bread. So they rearrest you, they bring you back right when they're about to tie your hands up to the post again. They say, hold on. You send somebody back to your house and you go get that record of debt because right after you got beat a week ago, the officer wrote to Telestai. By the way, I'm not making this up. They have these records of debts in museums all over the place. They've found thousands of these things. They're all over. This is a real thing. To Telestai. In English, it's translated, It is finished. John chapter 19, verse 30. When Jesus refused, Received the sour wine, he said to Telestai, It is finished. He bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. On the cross, your sins were paid for, your penalty was exhausted, your debt was forgiven. That, my friends, is something to hope in rather than all the stupid utopias that we believe in that no way could they possibly ever happen. If you have trusted the promises of God for you in Christ, then your sins are finished. They are paid for and you are free. And for the first time in your history, you can truly be a free thinker. See the world through Christ. Christianity is simple. But it is not easy. Especially in the dark world in which we live. What does everything I've been saying have to do with gender dysphoria? everything. Whatever the causes of gender dysphoria, I am not qualified to talk about. I don't know. Furthermore, I am not a judge of anybody. It's not my position to pronounce judgment on anybody. What is my job? My job is to love the people that God brings near me. 
My job is to be willing to sacrifice for the good of those God brings near me. I am authorized by Scripture to say there is grace for that. There is both forgiveness and power to accomplish kingdom purposes in the light of any and every malady that is suffered by human beings. One more thing. I've not even begun to scratch the surface of the depth of these issues that we are facing. And you are an ambassador of Christ. You and I are the people who need to step onto the field with the sword of the Spirit and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. So what do you do? Number one, preach the cross. Where you will find truth, you will find meeting, and you will find forgiveness. That is for everybody, no matter who they identify with as being. But secondly, you are to find good answers to the good questions that exist. There are a lot of good questions out there that are not easy to address. So what do you do? One good place is to go to Stand to Reason, str.org. These, by the way, websites are listed on your, your notes. You'll find answers to all kinds of apologetic questions. Another really good one is the Discovery Institute. You'll find them at discovery.org. And here you'll find a whole lot of resources on what's called the intelligent design movement. What is it that looking at the world around us tells us about who created our world? If you are interested in young earth creationism, go to answersingenesis.org. Org. It's not a Christian website, but PragerU.org provides answers that you will, to one degree, agree with or not agree with. Fair enough. Um, and the news site, the one that I get, the commentary I read on news, not necessarily the individual news stories, is World Magazine. That's world.wng.org. And by the way, we as a church have decided that whether you hold to a young earth cosmology or to an old earth cosmology, you're free to do that. And we believe that you can be a Bible-believing, Christ-honoring person who holds either view. We are, uh, Jerry Hines is going to be teaching at his 1030 Sunday school class in room, um, in the choir room, which is right behind where the coffee is served Uh, Starting at 10.30 on August the 6th is going to be teaching a class called Genesis is History. But if believing in young earth or old earth doesn't make you a disciple-making disciple, then what does? It depended upon whether you see the world through Christ. How you look at the world will determine how you answer these and other questions. It will determine how others that you know see and answer these questions. And if you begin to understand the world as seen through Christ, then you will begin to understand what it is that others around you are seeing or not. Again, this will not answer every interesting question in this life. You and I must stay thirsty. But it will provide a foundation, a worldview that assists you in assessing the many options that exist in the world around you. 
See the world through Christ.